61 District 6, stage 1 shooting. Skimmer Wayne, near Lakeland, Charles, 478 Tango. 378-1654. Thank you for joining us on Inside EMS. Now the always entertaining Chris Ceballero and the Ted Nugent of EMS, Kelly Grayson. Well, by that old clock on the wall, it's time to go Inside EMS. I'm your host, Chris Ceballero. Again, thank you for joining us. I really appreciate the opportunity to come and visit with you guys. Before we go any further... Here he is, the Ted Nugent of EMS, Kelly Grayson. Kelly, how are you? I am fine, man. I'm, I'm driving through sunny central Louisiana on my way to Nashville for the NRA annual meeting. You know, I, I remember we talked about that last year as well. This is an annual event for you, isn't it? Oh, yeah. And I've, I've got to go. Uh, this is the way I recharge my batteries and, uh, and you know, hang out and decompress with my, with my shooting community and the, the Ted Nugent of EMS needs to get get up there and 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 see the uh, the Kelly Grayson shooting. Maybe I can see my uh, my namesake up there. That's right. <laughs> see what Uncle Ted see what uh, see what outrageous things Uncle Ted is going to say this time around. And he's pretty big down there, right? He's uh, he's one of those big leaders down there for the NRA, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. Nugent's a uh, Nugent is a uh, very very big spokesman for the right to keep and bear arms and gun rights and. Uh, very smart, very articulate guy that sometimes you wish would get off your side because he says some pretty incendiary things that are kind of counterproductive. But uh, you can't fault him for not knowing knowing his uh, his subject, and uh, he he makes good points when he's not um when he's not throwing out invective and insults. So. Well, uh, you have a good time down there, and it's always great when you recharge your batteries because we get a better Kelly yeah. Grayson out of the deal. So have a good time down oh, there. Oh yeah, man! I'm gonna I'm gonna practice some shooting zen. Shooting zen, I like that. I like it's like it's like yeah. in the in the sand garden, isn't it? So, but uh, that's right. Let's go ahead. Let's go ahead and talk about some news while I got you going. Yeah. And uh, I'm, I'm going to hit you with the first one, Kelly, if that's okay. And you know, here's a patient that sues New York EMS for causing injury. And this is really kind of one of my pet peeves because it seems that we do this a lot. And one of the things that we get in the habit of doing is, is walking a lot of our patients to the, to the ambulance instead of using the stretcher. And one of the things I think we have to realize is that as soon as we come in contact with a patient and, you know, we're taking care of them, and if they get hurt along that way, we're kind of liable for that. So this story comes out of Brooklyn, New York, and it's for a woman who called 911 for breathing problems. She's suing FDNY. She said paramedics caused a gash in her leg that required 21 stitches. And basically, they kind of walked her to the ambulance, and her leg got caught. Uh, again, 21 stitches. She says that the sheets were full of blood. And the EMT tells her that she wasn't, they're not able to lower the step to carry her to the ambulance because it was unserviceable. And, you know, I, I think I try to impress upon the EMTs and paramedics that we, we really have to be able to make sure that we're keeping that person safe. You know, if they fall yeah. and they get hurt, it's our responsibility. You know, there's another case that, uh, you know, somebody fell, uh, somebody was attached to the stretcher and the stretcher tipped and it caused a fatality. And I think that we just yeah. get very, very complacent when it comes to people being on our stretchers, when it comes to putting people on our stretchers. And I really kind of don't understand how we, we take that so nonchalantly because people do get hurt. Well, they do, and but but herein lies the the rub. I I don't think that we should bring the stretcher in to every single call. 
Now, I get my stretcher out of the ambulance, and I park it as close to the patient as I can, but it's not, quite often, it's not feasible to bring a stretcher into the house. And, frankly, getting the stair chair out, in many cases, is, is less trouble than it would be to just pick the patient up and do a body carry and, and place them on the stretcher or to assist them outside. But that's the problem when you when you let your, your EMTs and medics use their judgment in that regard. Inevitably, somebody practices bad judgment, and uh, it, it burns everyone. 21 stitches is pretty uh pretty steep price to pay for an ambulance ride. And the fact that she was a respiratory distress patient that were making walk to the rig doesn't speak well for them either. You know, I, I practice the ABCs, ambulate before carry, but... I'm not going to make a chest pain patient, an altered mental status, or a respiratory distress patient walk any further than they absolutely have to. And quite often, you know, the bad respiratory distresses, I will just pick up and carry, even if they insist they can walk. But what strikes me, uh, the EMT really, really made some indefensible statements by telling the patient, you know, that their steps were inoperable. You know, you got to uh, you got to learn to cover yourself a little bit there, and and if you can't say something that's not incriminating, just keep your mouth shut. You know, I think that goes to the point though. Is at the time we're just saying whatever it is we need to say to to justify the behavior. And yeah. again, regardless of the situations, if, if your ambulance is un, is unserviceable, and, and certainly understanding the shortage of vehicles, it doesn't make a difference if they're on the stretcher and you're picking them up to put them into the ambulance. You know, it's yeah, well, the, it's that step that was broken, but but the step isn't broken to lift the stretcher and put the stretcher in the back of the ambulance. Yeah, and I, the the excuse really doesn't pass the sniff test, but the the statement, you know opens up deeper pocketbooks right there. It's one thing for uh, an ambulance crew to walk a patient to the rig and the agency says, hey, well, that's against our policy and we can show you right here in black and white why we discourage that sort of thing. Then you've got two EMTs who, who were guilty of some misconduct. On the other hand, if one of the EMTs says, hey, our truck is defective and that's why we're having to walk you, can't unload our stretcher, then you, you, you've painted the, the department as being liable as well. I think lawyers see that sort of statement and, and dollar signs start flashing in front of their eyes. I hope that it turns out okay for the patient and FDNY. I'm sure they've got pockets deep enough to uh, satisfy her. That's something we all need to be cognizant of and, and beware what we say and how we approach patients. And, and bottom line is stay out of that situation. Is Don't walk them if you don't have to. Yeah, and I have to agree with you, and and that's one of the things you know. I, I, and even you know the the we talked about the when we walk with folks on the stretcher, we walk with folks on the stretcher. We have one hand on the stretcher, you know, we're we're, we're walking to the side of it instead of walking it behind it, and we really have to yeah. be able to have good due diligence when we're holding on to those stretchers and taking care of those people. I mean, because now we've got a, a gentleman who, uh, you know, the stretcher tipped and, and uh, it was fatal yeah. for him. But, you know, I, I go yeah. ahead and digress. Let's go ahead and talk about our next story. Let what me, do you got? Let me ask you Let me ask you one question, though, Chris. You, I'm sure you've, you've been in this field long enough where you had something untoward happen on scene, Some, something, equipment failed or somebody goofed or something. Didn't you learn how to cover that sort of thing? And, and say the right thing to, to, uh, to cover your butt. Um, you know, I know of, I had a defibrillator fail once because batteries failed. I just made the sound effects and said, well, you know, that, uh, that didn't work. Let's package her up. Let's go. And hustled to the truck and got my spare batteries out. Uh, I ran a call one time without a stretcher because my supervisor 
left it in the ER. Not only did we not get reprimanded, but uh, we had the, the patient employers wrote us a commendation for our actions because I covered it so well. Yeah, I think that we have those things, man, you know, but I think that, you know, honesty is the best policy as well. You know, yeah. I think that, you know, when you say they're unserviceable, you know, the stairs are unserviceable, we can't put them down. I think that's something to understand, but they shouldn't be walking anywhere. I think you're picking them up and you're bringing them there. You know, I've had a defibrillator fail on scene, but, I, I you yeah. know, the lessons that I learned from that were I was able to talk to the, you know, to write up an unusual or write up, a, a, a you know, a situational report. I was able to talk to the people who were in charge. And sometimes yeah. you've got to go back to the family to say our equipment failed. And those types of transparencies, I think, is really what makes an outstanding organization. Yeah, it's true that sometimes we have to cover up those mistakes. We have to cover up those equipment failures. But are you keeping that information from the people that really need to know it? How would you feel if I came to your home to work a cardiac arrest and my monitor failed? I wasn't able to deliver the treatment that needed to be delivered. And subsequently, it could have saved your loved one. Well, you know, apologies go a long way toward uh, mitigating your, your risk and your risk in that regard. Gene Candy is fond of saying that people don't sue because they're looking for money. People sue because they're mad. And if you take away the anger, you diffuse the anger, likely as not, they're not going to pursue it any further. They just want someone to acknowledge that something happened and, and get an apology for it. Right. So you, you've got a point. Yeah. What do you got for us? My news, my news story is comes out of Austin. Austin Travis County EMS is suffering from some staffing shortages. Head of their paramedics association, Tony Marquette, is bringing to light to the attention of the city council that things are all not well in Austin. They've got on track to have a record number of separations this year on top of a record number of separations last year. Apparently, they're hemorrhaging people, and they've apparently got a morale problem, and uh, the city council is starting to look at ways to address that. Yeah, you know, Kelly, and, you know, this kind of ties into another story that you and I were kind of chatting about was the rural Wisconsin. They're struggling to get some volunteers up there as well, and there's some big EMT shortages. You know, and so I want to kind of counter with this. Regardless of the size of your system, I mean, Austin-Travis County EMS is a premier EMS system in the United States. And there are other big premier systems in the United States that are having staffing challenges as well, as well as now these rural volunteer stations that are having to close because they're not able to, you know, keep folks uh, coming in. But this seems to be an EMS problem more than it seems to be an Austin problem or a Wisconsin problem or a... And, and in Wisconsin, you know, their, their woes uh, in the rural, the, the volunteer rural services there are, are nothing new. Uh, that's something faced in just about every state that has a significant volunteer contingent. But I'm starting to change my mind on what, on the whole recruiting and retention problem uh, in volunteer EMS. My sweetheart is a uh, is a volunteer expert guru, and uh, you know she's got a, a significantly different take on on uh, the recruitment and retention problem, and she's starting to win me over. I, I think that it's not so much that it's hard to find volunteers is that we're looking in the wrong places and recruiting the wrong people for the wrong reason. We have untapped volunteer pools that we could we could mine uh, if we just knew where to look. Right now, volunteerism in the United States is at an all-time high. More and more people in our in our country are volunteering their, their services in one way or another. The question is, why is EMS not cashing in on that on that? altruism what what's keeping us from attracting those volunteers they're obviously willing to do it 
in other professions, why not EMS? I think we're just we're looking at the wrong people and recruiting for the wrong reason. Right. Yeah, I think you bring up really good points. Let me yeah. go ahead and jump to my next story, Kelly. And, you know, you and I have, have made a personal stand. You know, we talk about the Code Green campaign. You know, a lot more EMS leaders now. I just came out of Hopkinsville, Kentucky, for their EMS Links Leadership Conference, and there were some great EMS leaders yeah. there. And i got to tell you, there was a lot of leaders besides myself who were there talking about how many EMS providers are, are hurting themselves now and, and when are we going to stand up and, and kind of help? Well, my story is going to come out of Missouri, and, and I'll take you through the, the story initially. There was a comment about a, a, a patient who stabbed a paramedic, and there was some outcry about that. You know, Now come to find out that the story was fabricated, that the paramedic actually hurt themselves you know they stabbed themselves they cut themselves but what's really amazing here kelly is that if you read some of the comments that are on ems1 they're really kind of damning towards the individual that, that hurt himself and i contend is this one of those things that you and i talk about where is this a cry for help is this stress getting to this individual you know i, I guess the individual was relieved from his duties from the organization and, and there are people that are cheering the fact that he no longer works within the organization but is this a guy yeah. that winds up uh, a statistic rather than someone who, who reaches out and gets help and, and and like you and i say you know there's a stigma to this stress that we're now pointing a finger instead of fixing the problem and i got to ask you is this one of those times you know i'll i'll admit that i didn't i didn't grab i didn't have that take on it the first time around that that totally flew over my head i think kip tsort spotted spotted this story before it actually broke when he was he was investigating or, or trying to find out some information well when the uh story first came out uh before they knew that it was self-inflicted and uh, he made remarks that it, you know, it didn't pass the spell test. Something was not right with the story uh, long before it was actually reported in the in the news. And, and he was a bit incensed uh, because you know, you know, I've talked to Chris. We, I mean, uh, to Kip. We know, you know, his his uh, passion is is violent encounters in EMS and, and how to avoid them and, and how to deal with them effectively and 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 shining a spotlight on the violence we uh, we face sometimes uh, as EMS practitioners. And he thinks that this person's actions really set back those efforts quite a bit. Now, that may be true, but uh, I see your point as well. I hope this wasn't a cry for help, but it very well could have been. You know, cutters are not necessarily suicidal. Reading the reading the article, it says that he, uh, he was cutting himself, but he cut himself a bit too deep and needed to seek medical attention for that and panicked and, and fabricated a story. The way it sounds, it sounds like he was a cutter. And uh, was, you know, that's their coping mechanism. It's not a healthy one by any stretch of the imagination, but it doesn't necessarily make them suicidal. I'm almost willing to buy his, his story that, you know, he was cutting himself and, and overdid it a bit and had to seek medical attention. But in any case, I think this is, I, I'm not sure that firing the guy and drumming him out of the, uh, the system is, was the right answer. At the very least, it's, that's for proof positive that he needs some some psychological counseling and help just to develop better coping mechanisms wouldn't you say yeah i, I think that's a good point but you, the thing that caught me the most on this was how many people were pointing fingers except trying to help fix the problem you know if if yeah. the guy is a cutter 
And, and as you mentioned, and I have to agree with you that it doesn't necessarily mean that the that the, the, the he was trying to uh, kill himself. But, you know, that was his coping mechanism. We're still pointing fingers. We're still saying, yeah. you know, we're still damning the guy by his actions. And, you know. It is pretty hypocritical. Too, exactly. You know. you know, and this is your contention as well. Destigmatizing the fact that stress is a real thing. Yeah. And, and it just relates to this subject so well that regardless of what was trying to be accomplished, we're still pointing a finger saying, Oh, the guy's just crazy, and and he deserves what he gets. If he had if he had bled out, and they found him dead, there'd be candlelight vigils and memorials, and everyone would be, "Oh my God, we lost another brother! How can we stop this this epidemic of suicide among EMS providers?" But the fact that he lived through it, now he gets beaten up for it. Uh, yeah, that's pretty hypocritical. You know, uh, it, it, we should err on the side of the of the the patient and treat this as a cry for help uh, right. and give this guy some support. I'm with you. Yep. So uh, let's go ahead and transition to the clinical issue. And yep. uh, again, I think you and I are very, very thankful that we have folks. You know, to me, it's just you and I here sitting, talking, having a conversation. I, I don't even think mm-hmm. about that there's people out there that are actually listening to us. But, you know, th- that's not the case, you know, because we do get emails all the time and, and people kind of ask us some questions and ask us to kind of talk about some different things. And, and that happens today. You know, we get an email from Matt Romei and, and he asks us the question about excited delirium. And let me go ahead and read the, yeah. uh, let me go ahead and read his email to us and, and the, as he asks us to bring it up, uh, he, he talks about excited delirium. And in the setting of excited delirium, spice overdose, etc., how big a starting dose of benzos do you think it might take? I see this story out of Mississippi this week about the ODMCI and was wondering if we carried enough even for one patient. And then he wants us to kind of address the, the different types of benzos, Ativan, Valium, Versa, and so on and so forth. First off, I want to say thank you very much for sending that sending the question along because you know we've said it before kelly you and i that the folks out there that listen really kind of guide our content and kind of give us the ideas of what we want to talk about but excited delirium has been one of the things in our career field that has been i believe Mm -hmm. mismanaged for many many years and and we're seeing a lot of people who are dying from excited delirium especially in the presence of you know getting worked up getting fired up and then getting tased so i think this is a really great question to talk about and I'm going to go ahead and throw it into your court first. What do you got for him? I would say to Matthew that, first of all, I think that benzos are a singularly poor choice for sedation and chemical restraint in, in excited delirium. But the reality is, for, for a great many EMS systems, mine included, they're the only choice. Benzos kind of suck for for that sort of thing. Is that your um, medical opinion? Is, is, is sucking actually a medical? Yeah, is it? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's that, that's one of those that's one of those ten dollar medical terms. Okay, um, thank you, for, thank you for that. Uh, thank you for adding to that. I appreciate that. By the time by the time you give a sufficient dose of the benzo, we use Versed for example. By the time you give a sufficient dose of the benzo to calm them down, and that's presuming we actually carry enough on on our rigs to actually do some good. By the time you do that, you're you're at risk for for tanking their blood pressure, their respiratory drive everything else. The the therapeutic index for, for the benzos in that regard is pretty narrow. Um, we have a drug out there that is that is perfect for this. It's what it's great for, and that's ketamine. Very few cardiovascular and respiratory side effects. 
it's an excellent dissociative anesthetic. It makes patients calm down and reduces their gibberish level uh, to manageable levels. And why we're not using it uh, in greater degree, I don't know. Uh, our medical directors are looking at ketamine for our service, and uh, I, I sincerely hope that uh, we get it at Cadian soon. Yeah, ketamine is one of those drugs that I think is really more misunderstood than we have the opportunity to use. You know, now I've seen... It was abused so, for so long, you know. It's a horse tranquilizer. Right, right, right. Teenagers falling into a K-hole or something. But. but you get a lot more systems now that are starting to use ketamine for excited mm-hmm. delirium, to use instead of Versed for uh, intubation. Yeah. And, and I think that, again, this just goes back to one of the things that we talk about that there's not enough research that goes into what we use in the field that has been successful, and we've just kind of used the same old, same old, just because it's word of mouth. Why do you do that? Well, that's the way we've always done it. But I, I do want to address the fact of the benzodiazepine in excited delirium. I've seen the nasal atomizers work very, very successfully in excited delirium as, as well as seizures. And I think that's one of the things that we may need to do a little bit more research on is that using the nasal atomizer with Versed and excited delirium really makes the difference. Now, the challenge is going to be a lot of time with excited delirium, it's going to be hard to get something shoved in their nose that you're able to administer the medication. But, you know, again, in the absence, you know, Matt talks about, you know, what's going to be the doses that are going to make that work. Uh, again, I think local protocol is going to drive that because then what works with one patient who weighs, you know, 300 pounds, is that going to work for a patient who's 160 pounds? Regardless, when it comes to sided delirium, these people are really, really agitated. That They've got strength that comes out of nowhere, a lot of times because of the, of the, the drug that they're on. But secondarily, does it come down to the fact of maybe treating it with a, uh, you know, with with Haldol or something like that, just to knock them down? I think our our service allows ten milligrams uh, before calling for orders. But having said that, as long as I work for Acadian, I've never had such orders refused. So we get a get a, a big dose of of Versed going via mucosal atomizer or or even IM if necessary. I don't like to to deal with needles around thrashing people. Sometimes that's what you got to do. While that's taking effect, you know, I'll get on the phone and, and ask for PRN orders for additional. And, and the docs are usually pretty good with it. To paint a good enough picture of what's going on with the patient, and our local docs are, are fairly liberal in that regard. But even the benzos are far better than physical restraint. That's one thing most people don't really appreciate about excited delirium is that the, the goal is to stop the fight. And and the fight is not over when you have the patient strapped to the to the stretcher and and no longer a danger to you. It's just switched to a fight against the restraints. We have to stop the fight altogether to uh, slow down that express train to death. That's excited delirium. Sedation's the way to go. Yeah, and I have to agree with you. And and again, this is just one of those things that has had such such a big impact in the EMS career field, but yet we've failed, I think, to address it successfully of what is the consensus of treatment across the board and i think that different systems are doing different things and i don't know that that's necessarily the way that we deal with it but i gotta tell you kelly i think this is a real clinical issue yeah i think it is you know what or we're seeing the same thing with with ketamine now that we saw with fentanyl five years ago you know initially what was our first uh our first pain reliever that we use in, in large quantity was morphine right. because that's what we were familiar with. Right. Uh, and the people writing our protocols were familiar and comfortable with morphine 
uh, fentanyl was a, was an anesthesia, you know, drug, or, or it was a drug most commonly used by pain specialists and anesthesiologists. And, and some of the doses that they routinely give fentanyl in, uh, that would uh, give any emergency medical doctor a uh, pause, uh, give any ER doc the willies using it in that amount. So fentanyl was slow to catch on. But now that we're, we're using it regularly, we're seeing it. It's better than morphine right. uh, for free hospital care. And I think, uh, I think ketamine's going to be the same way. We're going to find out that ketamine is a heck of a lot better adjunct to pain relief and a, a better sedative all around than the benzos we're currently using. Yeah, i got to agree with you 100%. Well, man, that's what we think. We'd like to hear what you think. So drop us a line at the show at ems1.com and tell us what you think about ketamine, benzos, treatment of excited delirium, where you think it's going, where you think it needs to go. And for myself and co-host Chris Civilero, I'm Kelly Grace. Thank you for tuning in to Inside EMS.